In the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament, Habakkuk being a contemporary of Jeremiah, God is about to lead the people of Judah into the Babylonian captivity. And so Habakkuk says to the Lord, Lord, we, we desperately have sinned against you. Uh, we have forsaken you. And the Lord says, you're right, and I'm about to do something that is very unusual. I'm about to judge my people with a foreign people who do not even know my name. And Habakkuk says, Lord, we're bad, but are we that bad? <laughs> and they had this dialogue, uh, really, it's a, between the Lord and Habakkuk's response. But in the midst of that, Habakkuk makes this statement. He says this in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Lord, I have heard about your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord, and renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. He says, I've heard about your visitations of mercy. I've heard about your glory. It's happened before, but renew them in our time. That, that is a plea for a genuine spiritual awakening or a genuine movement of God that many people refer to as revival. And so the next few weeks, we're going to just walk through passages of Scripture that deal with the concept of a turning unto God and a longing for His empowerment and presence. Um, called genuine spiritual awakening, called genuine spiritual renewal, called revival. Now, now, one reason we're doing this, you say, why, why do we do this? Well, number one is to understand that God breaks into history, and that should enthuse us and give us hope as we look to Him. Now, that's not the best diagram in the world, but, but it, this is something that I was not taught in seminary that I haven't heard many people speak about, but as I read church history, there are major epochs in the history of the church that understand the dealings of God with His people somewhat like this little graph, and let me explain. The people of God go along in obedience. They're crying out to God somewhat, and all of a sudden, God just spikes. God showers down His Holy Spirit. And there's a massive movement of God among His people first, but in the culture at large, that is nothing they've ever experienced or known before. And then you go back to living obedient lives, hopefully calling out to God, and there's another spike. Uh, they're called things like the First Great Awakening, 1740 to 1743, the Second Great Awakening, 1800 to 1820, or the Great Prayer of Movement, or the movement in Wales in 1904-1905. But there's these pockets of God bringing power by His Holy Spirit to His church where He really blesses and energizes and does more in a short season than common day obedience can do in three, five, six, eight decades. It's like you're going down the road and you're test driving a car with a friend and you don't realize they've got afterburners and you're going 40 miles an hour and all of a sudden he drops the glove box and does a couple of switches and all of a sudden you're going 160 like your NASCAR driver. You go from 40 to 160. That, that's called genuine spiritual awakening. And I'm, I'm telling, that was the hope of large pockets of the church. If you read Jonathan Edwards, that, that's exactly the way he lived his life. That, and and there's, there's a hymn that... Is in the, the Baptist hymnal. 
by a guy named Daniel Whitsitt, and it goes like this. And this is, to me, this is theologically sound. He said, there shall be showers of blessing. This is the promise of God. There shall be seasons refreshing sent from the Savior above. Showers of blessing. Showers of blessing we need. Mercy drops round us are falling, but for the showers we plead. And Mr. Whittle says, you know, there are mercy drops, and we praise God for mercy drops. We praise God for what is happening, but we're, we're, we're pleading for the monsoons. So, so one reason I want to talk about this is I believe the, the, the way that the church lives with expectation, and then the church is energized when God comes with His, with his power and presence. And so it breeds hope and expectation in our lives. There's a quote in the bulletin from a wonderful book uh, entitled A God-Sized Vision, and this is what the authors say. And part of the quote will be up here. But they say, We should never demean God's work, however ordinary, for with the Lord, even the seemingly ordinary is extraordinary grace shown to undeserving sinners. You know, it's all of grace. The next thing, this is not other, but listen to this. this is, Yet we submit that many Christians have grown so content with the ordinary that they don't bother asking God for anything more. False biblical dichotomies that widen the chasm between the New Testament and us cannot justify reluctance to pray as Jesus and the apostles prayed. We who live, pick it up here, we who live in the era of small things, the mercy drops, thank God for that, must remember eras when the big things seen and heard in the Bible returned once more. And and that's what I'm saying, that, that one reason is to remind us of the incredible hope that is ours because God is and God works. Another reason that, that we need to, that I want us to walk through this and think about it, one thing that keeps us from thinking correctly is many of us grew up in um, a culture where you schedule revival every spring, three weeks after Easter. And it was called Revival Week. And uh, some of you, that doesn't register with you, and I can say, praise God, it doesn't register with you, because you don't have to unlearn something absolutely stupid. Uh, in our day, well, I grew up in a time when you, you, you scheduled revival, and so we have misconstrued the term revival, and therefore we've lost the hope. We've lost the hope of revival. Revival is something that you, you play. In fact, I, I read one where, place where a sign said, revival here every night this week, bracket except Tuesday. And uh, so, so this, for example, revival is when the kingly rule, the sovereign God, breaks in among us. Conversely, many of us have taught revival or planned meetings. Remember Tuesday night, bring a friend night. Wednesday night, bring your family pack of pew night. Thursday night, uh, bring a potluck, supper, and come on down. I mean, that type of thing. They're planned. Biblical revival comes to an expectant, prepared, pleading for impairment people. But the way we've been taught, many of us, not all of you, those of you that are Lutherans or Episcopalians are going, what are you talking about? Catholics are going, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the old-timey Baptist and old-timey Orangeburg Methodist, you know, those type of people. It's, it comes to an organized people. You have, you have a revival committee. You have a revival chairman. You have lay this, and you, you just and you just bring it in. Well, that, that's unbiblical. It's unsound, and it takes away our hope. 
The third thing is this. Genuine spiritual awakening, I believe, comes to a desperate people. I've said before, and it's an overstatement, but I've said before, only desperate people go hard after Jesus. And by, by that I mean p- people who, who, who see the sin in their life that still remains and who realize where they could be apart from the grace of Christ, cry out, oh God, have mercy on me. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, a, a poor man pleads for mercy, but a rich man will answer you harshly. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. So, so desperate people seek the empowerment of God because they realize where they could be apart from the dramatic, wonderful, gracious, intervening mercy of Jesus in their life by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see in your heart rebel lust, rebel arrogance, rebel pride, rebel worldliness, and you say, oh God, have mercy, do not let me go there. And you realize how close you can come to blowing it. So only desperate people desperately cry out for Jesus and the empowerment that comes from heaven. People who think they have it together, show up occasionally, do their thing, but there's no desperation. I want us to be a desperate people. I want us to be desperate families, individuals, families. I think of our nation. And you know, I'm not a prophet of doom. But I look at the, the landscape of our nation, and it, it breaks my heart. The, the, just the world. Example, I don't want to get into this too much, but I've read books on the Wahhabists, you know, the Muslims that want to uh, be violent. And I've talked to experts, and most experts say that in the entire Muslim population, only 5% are Wahhabists. Well, that's 50 million people. 50 million people think they're doing Allah a credit by being disruptive and violent and killing infidels. That's wild to me. It's wild to me to sit back and pick up the paper and see where one of the most, probably the most, the, the most cartoonish, outlandish country in the world, North Korea, we think has nuclear capabilities or soon will have. Th- that's unbelievable. That's like giving a drunk keys to the pickup truck and say, drive through this playground field with children. It's, 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 un- it's unbelievable. And, and whether you're right or left in this area, I, I look at mounting nas- national debt, and I say, you know, where's our thinking? How about our, gra- I mean, I go all these things, and I say, Lord, we need your protection. We need your power. We need you to, to radically change the church and to change our culture. And I, I, I just say to you, I say to myself, I am not as desperate as I should be. I'm not as desperate as the figures and the time in our history should make me. It's easy to be asleep at the helm, brothers and sisters. And I'm always thinking, what type of legacy will we leave our children and our grandchildren the coming generations? Only desperate people go hard for Jesus. So let me give you some definitions of revival that I think are biblical. Revival is a sovereign, kingly work of God whereby the Holy Spirit comes upon an expectant people 
with refreshing power for the glory of his name and the advancement of his kingdom. It's the work of God, but he comes upon unexpected people. Here's the balance. God does it. God does it. But usually, by and large, he comes upon people who are crying out, Round us the mercy drops are falling, but we plead for the monsoons, O God. And let it begin with me. Wonderful book called Pentecost Today by Ian Murray, who's a wonderful writer, Australian. He says, Revival is an extraordinary communication of the Spirit of God, a superabundance of the Spirit's operation, and enlargement of His manifest power among us. It is an extraordinary communication of the Spirit of God, a superabundance of the Spirit's operations communicated among us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite uh, writers, says, quite frankly, this is revival. In revival, the Holy Spirit fills the church with the glimpse of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So, So my thesis is that revival falls upon genuine spiritual awakening comes upon an expectant people whose hearts are crying, come in power, Lord Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so my, my calling is to be in a position of expectation, a, a position of, of, of readiness, a, a position where I cry out, come, almighty God, come. It comes to an expectant people. Now, in the book of James, we're going to be there this morning. In the book of James, uh, it's, it's a very interesting book. James is, is writing to the church that's been dispersed, Jewish believers who've been dispersed. And, and he talks about one of the issues that, that they battle against. And he says, he says, we're battling against worldliness. This is what he says in chapter 4. Verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you not know? Or do you think that the scripture says without reason that the spirit he calls to live in us envies intensely? There's a various interpretations of that phrase the spirit he causes to live within us envies intensely i believe it means the holy spirit that lives within us envies longs for our complete worship of the living god because he goes on and says this but he gives us more grace that's why the scripture says god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble so so he says you adulterous people don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity or hatred toward god and you say what is what is friendship with the world? We'd look at the book of James. Friendship with the, with the world in the book of James involves the following. It's, it means you, you disdain the poor and you give preferential treatment to ungodly rich people. You, you try to seek their approval by being nice to them while the poor who love Christ, you kind of push to the side. That's worldliness. That breaks the heart of God. Worldliness in James means that you, you listen to the word of God, but you don't make any adjustment in your life. You, you, you hear it, you listen, and you walk away. His illustration is like a man that, that gets up and looks in the mirror and makes no adjustments. 
Another way, mark of worldliness is that you don't keep a tight rein on your tongue. He gives a whole section of chapter 3 to talk about the poison of the tongue. He says, religion that God our Father considers pure and undefiled is this, to, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep yourself from being polluted by the world. And part of that is watching your tongue. He says, he says, brothers and sisters, how can it be that we stand and sing the doxology and then go in the foyer or in the parking lot and curse our brother and sister who's made in the image of the one we've just praised? So that's worldliness. He says, worldliness is when you harbor bitter and in, bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts. You, you just har- you harbor unforgiveness. You harbor selfish ambition. You're just, you're just a bitter, dried up person. That's worldliness. Worldliness, according to James, is when you make extravagant plans for the future and you don't even consider God. You don't honor Him with your time and, 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 and thinking and resources. You, you don't give glory to Him. You don't say, it's only as the Lord gives strength. It's only by God's grace. You, you live as a professing believer, but pragmatically as an agnostic. God is, but big deal. But James says, that is worldliness. And that's interesting, because if you ask most of us older folks, what is worldliness, we say you don't dance, drink, dip, drink, or smoke girls who do, or date girls who do. That's worldliness. Forget holiness codes, remember the word of God. Forget holiness, remember scripture. James is in your stuff. And so he uses, he says, he says, he says, Friendship with the world is hatred toward God. You see, we, we, bite, we fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. They're all intertwined. I don't know how to separate them. Where one gives, the other takes up. Where one takes up, the other comes. They're, they're all, it's like a three-strand rope, the world, the flesh, and the devil. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? There is an odorless, undetectable gas that kills many people in our country every year. The Center for Environmental Health says up to 400 to 500 people a year die from carbon monoxide poisoning. They say that 15,000 Americans every year visit the ER because of encounter with carbon monoxide. And I, I would just say to you that that worldliness is, according to James, it can be an odorless, almost undetectable gas that seeps into our spirit. And you combat carbon monoxide poisoning by giving pure oxygen. The Word of God is pure oxygen. You take it. So, so you, you look at this and the question is how to be a prepared people who are expectant and who are waiting for the power of God. And I think James answers, how do you, how do you avoid worldliness? How do you avoid this poisoning? And Because right after the passage, I already says this, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. He begins and ends with the same theme. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he'll lift you up. And in between those beginning and ending statements, he gives four statements regarding how do you humble yourself before the Lord? How do you come as prepared people? How do you fight the odorless, adulterous message of the world? Number one is this. You submit yourselves unto the Lord. You come before him and say, Lord, I, I want to continually deal with a striving for unconditional surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Unconditional surrender. Everything. And, and you do that, you, you, you deal with unconditional surrender according to the book of James. It's a hard book. You, you deal with it because you, you long for joy. Just listen to these verses. James 1 verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Therefore, verse 2, consider it pure joy. Pure joy. And then he says in, in, in chapter 1, verse 17. Listen, verse 17. He says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Man, I change, but Abba Father doesn't. My inclinations change, but Abba Father's does not. My, my ups and downs are dependent upon the weather and how I feel and how my football team did yesterday, but not Abba Father. He's unchanging. And then he talks about receiving the Word of God, and he says this, it says, but, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does or happy. You, you, you gave me the, the, the perfect law that gives freedom. Freedom. And, and the man who does that and responds to it will be blessed in what he does. That's the promise of God. So we submit out of gladness of heart. Unconditional surrender. You study the history of warfare and people want to surrender. Say, we want to surrender, but we want to keep our arms and we want to be able to keep our city. And the guy says, no, unconditional surrender. There's no conditions. You lay down your arms and you depend upon our mercy. Unconditional surrender. No, the head of their state, Hirohito in World War II, he must go. Unconditional surrender. And when you read the scripture, that's what Jesus says, for your welfare, unconditional surrender. Submit yourselves, therefore, to the Lord. But, but you do it out of joy. Consider it pure joy, my brothers. He's the Abba Father who gives every good and perfect gift. Unconditional surrender. If, if you gaze intently into this perfect law that gives you freedom, you want freedom? Here it is. Here it is. You'll be blessed. You'll be happy. You'll be benefited in what you do. That's the promise. You don't have to sell people a bill of goods. You say, just see, behold the magnificence of Jesus. You submit. How are we a prepared people for God's movement? Well, we, we gladly submit to God out of, out of obedience. We, we are. 
And secondly, it says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist. Resist. Calvin said this, resisting or fleeing, resisting the devil fleeing is to be taken here for putting to flight or to routing the devil. Resist the devil. He'll flee. First of all, you submit. Then you resist. And how do you resist? We resist the devil by putting on the full armor of God and turning the deaf ear to the overtures of the devil as we heed the shepherding, wooing voice of Christ. The full armor, brothers and sisters. You know, the belt of truth. Feet shed. The shod with the gospel of peace. The breastplate of righteousness. I think that's the imputed righteousness of Jesus. You protect yourself by realizing who you are in Christ. The helmet of the hope of your salvation. Hope, hope, hope. The shield of faith, which you quench the fiery darts of the devil. How do you hold the shield of faith? With the promises of God. The sword of the Spirit. And, and, and you heed the wooing voice of the shepherd. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice and they follow after me. We, we heed the voice. How, how are we all prepared people? Well, we, we, we submit. We, we resist. Knowing that as we resist in the power of Christ, the devil Some older people can tell you this. I'm getting there. So I'm almost old. There, there is a name the devil hates. What Luther said, one little word shall fail him. Huh? What is the word? Jesus. Jesus the crucified. Jesus my substitute. Jesus, my Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. You resist. You resist. And then he says here, he says, you, you, you draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you devil-minded. I think it can be interpreted this way. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You've you've submitted, you've resisted, now you draw near. And you draw near by having hands that are clean because your heart is pure. You deal with your motivations, then you deal with your heart, then you deal with your outward conduct. Motivations, outward conduct. Clean, pure heart, clean hands. Pure heart, clean hands. Pure heart, clean hands. You you pray the prayer of of the psalmist, uh, it says, Lord, consider my motivations. Lead me in the ever- everlasting way. See, pure heart, clean hands. And that's, we, we do that daily. We struggle. We fall. We, 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 run, we run back. We submit. We resist. We draw near. Motivations, outward actions. And, and, and then he, he says this, and it's very interesting. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Let your laughter be changed to mourning and your joy to gloom. Then humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. But grieve, mourn, and wail. So what, what, 
This is what that little phrase means. It means exchange your silly, contentless mirth with an empathy that's born from heaven. Change your laughter to mourning, your joy to gloom. In the book of Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, he says twice, the people of God have forgotten how to blush. They're forgotten how to blush. They, they just don't blush anymore. We live in a culture that all too often we have forgotten how to blush. We say, well, you know, this is happening and that's happening, but that's just the way people are. Let's watch ESPN. Instead of saying, boy, our hearts should be broken, we should be weeping, we should be devastated. Well, you know, abortions have leveled off. We just have 1.6 million a year in this country now, the last three or four years. They're leveled off. 1.6 million, folks. Or, you see what I'm saying? Instead of being people who feel and who experience and who weep and who are burdened and who wake up at two o'clock in the morning. The psalmist says time after time, remember God in the night watches. And I think that means when you wake up in the middle of the night and your heart is just burdened, you cry out to him. Oh, God have mercy. God have mercy. What's happened to my family? God have mercy. What's happened to this, this community? God have mercy. Why is there a disdain for your name? God have mercy. How are we calling what is up, down, and down, up in this culture? God have mercy that we live in post-modernity where it says there are no standards except for the tribe or the people group and we cannot ever enforce any standards. When you tease that out, how can we even have speed limits? God have mercy. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to gloom and your joy to sorrow. We've forgotten how to blush. The other day, we were at a staff meeting. We have staff meeting on Monday mornings, and after we have some time together, we always kind of stop. I said, "Well, what do you think about this one?" I said, "Guys, you know, I, I saw a, a, I saw a pretty good movie last week. You might like to watch with your wives. It's, it's a it's a chick flick, but it's it's, it's bearable." And I told them the name of the movie, and I said, it's, "It's a clean movie. It elevates fatherhood." And I said, "But but it 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 uh just just." Be aware that it has a secular approach towards sexuality. There's no nudity. It's just people are living together. And one of the guys on staff said, so what do you mean it's a good movie except for the unbiblical, ungodly sex? And I laughed and I thought, you know, bingo. It's kind of the point where um, this is very good entertainment. I'm not saying you shouldn't watch the movie. I'm just saying, am, am I aware? Am I aware that this is against the heart of God. And do, do I say to myself, self, there's an odorless gas that's coming under the door of our lives and it can poison us. And we need to be people who are prepared, who are crying out, God have mercy. We need to submit ourselves to the Lord. We need to resist the devil in the name of Jesus. We need to draw near to God and draw near to Him as we purify our hearts and cleanse our hands. And, 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 and we need to grieve, mourn, and wail over your sin, my sin.
the sin around me. So, these, these next few weeks, as we're talking about general spiritual awakening, or if you're not a Baptist or Methodist by background, you can call it revival. That's an okay term, but some of us have to work through the baggage there. Uh, I just want you to, to understand that, that this... Uh, I saw this illustration, but... Um, Revival starts like this. You, you draw a circle, this piece of chalk. That'll come up, Gene. Be okay. You draw, Gene's in charge of our facilities. And I don't want to make him just, oh my gosh, just chalk. Come up. So you, you draw a circle and you say, Lord, may revival start with a person in this circle. Me. Do, do with me. And, and yes, we're concerned about A, B, and C, but it's, it's got to start with the person in this circle. I want you to draw a circle this week. I want you to mean business with God. Because I, I believe the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts. I do. And He will point out areas where you're just, you're not prepared. And we've talked about some of those things in the future, but it, draw a circle. The circle, it begins here. A piece of chalk. Another thing I was doing this week is there's a, I think there's a prayer here. I meant for the very prayer here. I don't think it's here. Hmm. I'll just tell you. Okay, it's a circle. But then, um, 7 o'clock at night, for the next weeks, wherever you are, just stop. If you're, if, you're, if you're at a committee meeting, just close your eyes where you are or just maybe excuse yourself and go get a drink of water. Uh, if you're eating supper as, with a family, just stop and say it's 7 o'clock. But just stop and say 7 o'clock and say, Lord, triune God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, work deeply in my heart to make me a prepared person and hasten the day of your blessing. Something like that. Seven o'clock. Lord, show me. Teach me. Every day at seven o'clock, wherever you are. Tonight in community groups, stop the community group. Seven o'clock, pray. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Let's just stand where we are. Lord, because of the reality that the, the most holy, committed people among us will always struggle with sin, this message from James hits every one of us. And I, I pray that every one of us, no matter if we're on the elder board or if we're a high school student or a middle school student, I I pray that we would draw a circle and we would stand in it and say, Spirit of the living God, what would you have me to do? What, What do I need to make right that has gone wrong in my life? What do I need to do in the area of relationships? What do I need to do to be a prepared person to receive 
your blessing and to be able to call forth with full uh, energy, oh God, bring a genuine spiritual awakening in our country. Lord, we as a country need your awakening. Lord, we as a church need for you to speak to us. I, I thank you for these dear people. I thank you for the, the people that I know here. And, and, and yet, Lord, even as we pray about ourselves, that there are issues in, in the life of this church that I'm aware of that I'm not aware of, that we're not aware of, that you, you want to intervene in. We need to submit ourselves unto you. Oh, God, have mercy upon us. I pray we'd be a prepared people. God, forgive us. In the name of Jesus, forgive us. And let us understand that part of crying out for forgiveness and repentance means that we're willing to do what we need to do to be the people you've called us to be. Um, so we, we would plead for that. Um, Lord, sweep in among us, I pray. Come by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.